Amen. Well, you can be seated if you're standing. Um, man, if you're if this is your first time here with us, um, Restoration Church might not be uh, a church that you're um, familiar with, or maybe uh, a little bit different. But we we over the last few years have felt like the Lord has really led us to take some strategic steps as a church and. Uh, Man, I, we're starting to see some of the fruit of that, and I just love it. And uh, I think that dream that Pastor Mark just shared with us is a really big part of that. And uh, so keep praying into that. And also, um, I shared on Slack, and I shared on our church Facebook page, a sermon um, by Pastor Stephen Furtick. And it's from Elevation Church, and he's really talking about this new normal um, in this time of corona. But I think it's more than that. As I listen to this message um, it talks about reaching back into the familiar and missing the new normal that God is calling us into. And um, I know that he's talking about Corona, but as I listened to it, I just felt like um, this is the journey that we've been on as a church. And so I, I put it up in different places for us as a church to really listen to. And uh, I want to encourage you over this long Memorial weekend to try to find a time. Um, I know it's an hour long. At first I was like, yay, Stephen Furtick's preached for an hour and I was shorter. Um, but if I don't hurry up, I'm, I won't be shorter. So, um, But uh, I really think that was a great word, a great message for us as a church. It resonated in my heart, so I passed it on to you. Um, we are in a series that we've called Trust the Story and uh, trying to talk about the entire story of the Scripture. One of the things I think, especially as Pentecostal believers, that we're not really good at is being able to articulate the message that God has been telling from Genesis to Revelation. Um, you know, we're pretty good at the ABCs of salvation, the Romans road of salvation. Um, but if someone asked you the question, what do, what's the story of the Bible? Could you in maybe 60 to 90 seconds really articulate the story that God has been telling from Genesis to Revelation? And that's really what this series is all about. It's a, it's a long game uh, type of series. We're going to be in it through the end of December and uh, really just trying to give us a foundation for being able to articulate the things that, that Scripture points out. So if you've missed weeks, uh, CDs, DVDs are available for you to pick up, but there's also the online version, our podcast. There's um, also on Facebook, you can watch the video of that. And then there's tons of handouts and references that I've made throughout the weeks for those of you that want to study uh, beyond what we've, I've given you. We're using a book called um, The Untold Story. I almost said Understanding the Story, but The Untold Story by Frank Viola that's helping us get a little bit more context than maybe we're used to. And then I'm kind of elaborating on some of that. Uh, as we go. And we've been talking about making sure we understand the Jewishness of the Bible or understanding the context. And this is so important. Um, when I went to Israel, maybe 10 years ago or so, um, had an experience where um, I remember we were uh, at a place called Masada. And I'm like, what are we doing here? Like there was so much about Jewish history and context of the Bible um, that I didn't know. I'm like, Masada's not even in the Bible. I don't even know what this has to do. Why are we? Why am I even here on this trip? I'm here to you know see where Jesus walked, and um, but it began to pick at my brain and and help me understand there are things about the context of the Bible that I don't understand, and much of our modern day theology has its roots in early church fathers that were very anti-Semitic. 
Um, Martin Luther would be one of them. And I, this isn't a, um, I'm not trying to put Martin Luther on a cross and, you know, crucify him. Uh, he has done a great thing for the church. He opened up the, the Bible, the scripture for the common man in ways that we are eternally grateful to him for, for his contributions. But we have to understand that people have flaws. And uh, Martin Luther, some of the statements he made about the Jewish people, uh, very harsh, um, even, you know, wanting them to burn down their synagogues and burn all their, their Torahs and their scriptures and um, just violent things, even wishing the death of some of them, many of them. Um, and the, even you enter into the Crusades and the, the Christians trying to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims, from the Jews. Um, and there's a lot of things that uh, our theology is based on that maybe is a, not a solid foundation, but... In 1940, the late 1940s, early 1950s, there was a discovery known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a part of unearthing um, copies of the scriptures, old copies of the scriptures, to help validate our current copies of the scriptures. But it also shifted our understanding of the context of the Bible. It really shifted our understanding of the way we interpreted the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, some modern-day scholars will joke and say, you know, in the evangelical church, Jesus is our Savior, but Paul is our Lord. Um, and meaning by that, um, that we sometimes overemphasize some scriptures that Paul gave us, and we're really misusing them to our demise. I believe one of those is the way that we've treated women in leadership within the church. I think there's been a misunderstanding that's been corrected in most circles, most scholarly circles, but as Pentecostals, we tend to not like scholarly circles, and so we, we sometimes shy away from that. So I think we were a little late to the game but I am grateful to the Assemblies of God for the Center of Holy Land Studies that we have just started over the last 10 to 15 years and really helping us understand the context of the Bible. So that's a lot of what we're trying to do right now is give us a foundation. So some of this, you may be like, well, that wasn't what I was taught in Sunday school, or that might not be what I learned. And we're wrestling with some things, and that's good, and that's okay. Now, our reading for this last week was from pages 86 through 88, in the untold story, Acts chapter 15 and the book of James. Our reading for this coming week is the same thing because the, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, so if you've got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to talk about the Jerusalem council, but the book of Galatians and the book of James and the Jerusalem council are three things that we need to keep in context together. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you're done with that reading, go back this week, reread Galatians, reread James, reread the untold story portions that deal with those, and reread Acts chapter 15, and try to begin to get our minds around what's being talked about here. Last week was part 10. We talked about coming to the table, and I introduced you to five groups of people that were alive on the earth when Jesus came, and uh, it was a response to what we called Hellenism. So if you missed it, you're going to have to go back to next week, and I linked a copy of a podcast that you could go to find more understanding, because four of these five groups are referenced in our Bible, but we really don't have a full understanding of what these groups believe, how they acted, and so trying to, to broaden our understanding of who these groups were and uh, what they did for us and what Jesus said and how it interacted with these groups of people. 
One of those groups that does not appear in the scriptures is the Essenes. The Essenes are the ones that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls that I referenced earlier. Um, I personally believe Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, was a member of the Essenes. He would have been a priest, which you would think would have put him in the category of the Sadducees, but he was not corrupt. The Bible says he was a righteous priest. Um, in my understanding, I think he was a member of this Essene group um, and how they lived, how they acted. I think John the Baptist, his teachings were very Essene-like. We're going to talk more about that in Acts 19 when we get to John's baptism and start talking about that. But there are things that, that we can learn from all of these groups and from all of these teachings that, that help us put Scripture in its original context. One of the things was last week we talked about um, how Paul tells us that after he had an encounter with the Lord, he went off and spent time in Arabia with the Lord. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, it says, when Paul got saved, he immediately began teaching in the synagogue. Well, that seems to contradict because in Galatians, he doesn't immediately begin teaching. He goes off and he learns from Jesus, and then he comes back and begins teaching. Unless the way that Luke is using the word immediately is not the way we use the word immediately, and he's putting it in a context. And so it's important for us to make sure we take Scripture and Scripture and we put it together. We understand what these phrases and words mean so that we can uh, get a fuller understanding of what's happening. Uh, last week, coming to the table was really all about wrestling with how the Gentiles fit. We talked about the Apostle Paul and his gospel in the book of Galatians and how that played in. And we talked, we titled it Coming to the Table. Well, today, I'm going to title this Staying at the Table. Um, where, where's, where are the lines that we need to draw? That's what they were wrestling with. Um, and we talked about this culture of gentleness, this culture of humility, this culture of honor. And we're going to continue to develop that as we look at the Jerusalem Council today. Because when Paul began preaching his gospel, remember this from last week, he, he said that the Jews and Gentiles have become full children of Abraham. Okay, so the Jewish mission was to carry Torah or the law, not for justification, but because they were um, carrying it to display who God was. But for the, the Gentile, their mission was to be free from the law and to display who God was by the freedom of the Spirit. Now, we talked about it last week. Paul's not claiming a free-for-all, and we're going to see it in here, too. And there's one more piece of context I want to give you right before we dive into Acts 15. Because Paul referenced last week in Galatians the three pillars of the church. And Peter, James, and John, he calls them in the book of Galatians the, the pillar. We know them as the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter was the leader of the church. I believe he was the leader of all the church. Paul references he's the, the preacher of the, the, the message to the Jews, and he himself was the preacher of the message to the Gentiles. Um, John, we know later from church history, becomes the pastor of Asia, if you will, or the apostle over Asia, spends a lot of time in Ephesus. And James, as we're going to see here in a moment, becomes the leader of the Judean church. Judea was the southern part of Israel, okay, so it's in the Jerusalem, heavy Jewish area, okay, so this is the, the writer of the book of James we're going to look at next week, and he is the guy who's about to speak. The question is, who is this James? 
I grew up being taught that James was the half-brother of Jesus. So this was the James that was, you know, Jesus' half-brother, you know, born to Mary and Joseph. And he rejected Jesus when he was alive. But afterwards, you know, he obviously got saved and he came into the church and he becomes the leader of the church because... Uh, because of his family line with Jesus or however. Um, and that's a great story. And I don't have time to argue why I don't believe that um, but, or, or that side of it. But I do want to tell you that's probably not likely um, in the Jewish setting. As a rabbi, if I'm a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, I'm going to pick some students to be my inner circle the same way Jesus did, Peter, James, and John. He took them to certain moments, uh, healings that he didn't take all the disciples to, only three. He took them to the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The interesting thing is the Garden of Gethsemane happens on the night of Passover. Part of the Jewish tradition of Passover was the firstborn would go and stay awake all night and keep watch for... Um, the way that God kept watch over the nation of Israel, the firstborn son, because the firstborns were killed, would keep watch the night of Passover. It was their, their duty, their responsibility. So when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to keep watch with him the night of Passover, this is in the Jewish context. I believe all three of them were firstborn sons, which means that the James and John that we think were the brothers weren't the James and John that maybe we think they were. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also a disciple of Jesus. He was also a cousin of Jesus. So this word, brother, isn't used the way we use brother in our culture. It's used as a kinsman. So if Jesus had a cousin named James, the son of Alphaeus, he could be called his brother. And I believe that not only was James one of Jesus's relatives, but John also was one of his relatives. And so this is almost like a family group of disciples. Now, not all of them were totally related, but if you think back to Genesis, where Abraham said Sarah was his sister, um, she wasn't really his, you know, mom and dad sister. She was a kinsman, so or kinswoman, if you will. And so that's the way this term was used. So I believe that that makes a lot more sense in the context and is going to help us understand Scripture as we look at it later. I don't know that the apostles would have taken the brother of Jesus and put him in as an inner circle member um, I think that these would have been the same three guys, and I think that's why the Apostle Paul defers to them and says, you know, let's them speak. Let's them say, yes, your gospel is a good gospel. Go and preach it to the Gentiles. And uh, we see that in the Apostle Paul. He's kind of given a bad rap as being this proud and arrogant guy, uh, but we do see him, you know, deferring to these three pillars of the church for, you know, them to say, yes, we give that approval to your gospel. And so, Acts chapter 15, I do want to tell you that a lot of what I'm going to share with you today, um, Marty Solomon, Ray Vanderlyn, two, pe two people that I've studied in the Jerusalem Council, a lot of this is going to come directly from what I've gained from them. So if it sounds like I'm plagiarizing, I maybe am. Um, but a lot of it also comes from Mark Turnage, my time in the Holy Land studies, and some different things as well. But Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. That's where we left off last week. Certain people came down, okay, so from Judea, Judea's south, but when you remember, when you go from Judea to anywhere, you go down, you don't go up. So you go down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
Okay, this is against Paul's gospel. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the Gentiles how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Wow. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So they're still wrestling with, what do we do with the Gentiles? Again, the Jews at this point, this is one thing I was not taught growing up. The Jews are continuing to follow the law, Torah, not for justification, but because they believe that this is the covenant they still have with God to put him on display as the people of God. Paul preaches this. He preaches one message to Jews and one message to Gentiles, but both are justified by faith, not by works, okay? But they, Paul says the Gentiles should not keep the law. They should not be circumcised, but the Jews should be and should continue to do that. And the apostles, elders, and Pharisees here are meeting. This is a totally Jewish conversation that's happening right now. This is about 20 years after Pentecost. 20 years after Pentecost, they're still wrestling with what are we going to do about these Gentile believers. Now, to understand it, let's look at the, the, the law of Moses, what, we call, what I've been calling the Torah. There's three parts of the law of Moses. This is going to be important to understand what's about to come. There's the cultic law. Okay, we think of the word cult, we think of like false religion. Don't, please don't think of it that way. Cultic just means liturgical worship. Anything that's required or needed a temple or a tabernacle to happen, this is part of the cultic law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, um, the, the things that are needed to, you know, to, to participate in the temple, that's cultic law. You got to understand, we as, as Gentile believers still need cultic law. We still need daily sin sacrifices, but Jesus has become our daily sin sacrifice, Okay, He doesn't have to be offered again and again, but his blood every single day is our sin offering. So this law is still kind of in effect. It's just Jesus has settled it for us. He becomes that daily sacrifice for us so often when you study it out. Then there's the ethical law. This is basically universal laws for all people of all time because this is how God made the universe to function. The Ten Commandments are a part of this. Don't kill. Okay, that's like a universal law for everybody all the time. Don't kill people. Uh, the Sabbath is a part of this. And you might be like, whoa, the Sabbath is a part of this? Yeah, because the Sabbath starts in Genesis chapter 2. God creates our world with this universal law of Sabbath. Okay, it's not a part of the Jewish law, the Torah, although it shows up there. This is a part of the beginning covenant that God has with the earth. He sets up these laws. So those are ethical laws. Then there is a Hebrew word that I'm not going to even try to pronounce, but it means the works of the law. This is what makes the Jewish people Jewish. It's what sets them apart. So this is the voluntary law that they carry out as a kingdom of priests. Kosher eating, 
clothing, mixed fabrics, don't wear them. Wear these tassels, circumcision, the cleanliness rituals. All of these things are a part of this. So this is the law, and Jews for centuries are trying to, to wrestle with how to live this out. Okay, we sometimes think that the law is pretty black and white. It's not pretty black and white. It's not always black and white, I should say. Because throughout the history of Jewish thought, there were two main schools of thought. Okay, so if we think of the political divide in our nation, there's two main schools of thought. There's Democrat, there's Republican. Now, there's other schools of thought out there that trickle off, but there's two main ones. Same concept here. There's two main schools of thought. When it comes to being justified... The Jews do not believe that when we are justified, it actually means we're righteous. We're not righteous. We're just declared righteous. Okay, there's a difference. God declares us righteous. It's not that we are righteous. There's no one righteous. But there is a way for God to declare us righteous or to exonerate us, if you will. So for the Jews, the first thought is the guy named, a rabbi by the name of Shammai. Shammai believes by the works of the law, God sees your obedience, and then he declares you justified. Okay, so you're still declared justified by God, but it's because he sees how well you're obeying the law, and therefore you're declared righteous. A rabbi by the name of Hillel says, no, God declares us justified by believing, by faith. And as a result of that, now we carry out the law as the mission of being Jewish, so Shammai, his group is saying, Gentiles can only be justified if they get circumcised and carry the law. But Hillel is saying, no, everyone is justified by faith. But now before you get all excited about this Hillel guy, um, he actually, even though he says this, for us Gentiles, he's still not giving us full rights as children of Abraham. Okay, it's like we're cousins. So he's going to say, yep, you can be justified by faith, but you're not full children you're just like cousins. So what's about to happen here in the Jerusalem Council? They're going to wrestle with this. They're going to have this debate that they normally would have. And this is not just about justification. This is about sonship. This is about daughtership. This is about full rights as children of God. And one group is going to say, nope, that is too far. That is too inclusive. And the other group's going to say, no, this is what God had in mind all along. And we're going to see that the consensus is, Hillel is right, only he didn't go far enough. So let's keep reading. Acts chapter 15, after much discussion. Wow, they have this big debate. They're doing this very Jewish thing. Peter gets up and he addresses them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. <laughs> now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He's not saying Jews shouldn't follow the law. He's just saying Gentiles come to the table as full children of God by faith. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So this idea that the Jews are going to wrestle with, we're going to talk about it more in just a minute, but I need you to imagine 
Imagine, this is going to be hard, but imagine a world where the followers of Jesus don't agree. <laughs> yeah, see? Okay, try really hard, but this is where they are. They're like totally, they're like, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what to do. But they're going to wrestle with it. And I'm going to expound on that in just a moment. But the discussion winds down. Peter, who I believe, again, was the head, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, all over the world. Um, I'm going to explain that in a minute, too. And the, he talks about his experience with the Gentiles. And he's saying, hey, you know, this is what we need to do. But before you're, like, cheering on Peter, remember what happened in Antioch. Because Peter's like, hey, guys, we can't make the Jews do this. And they're, they have full rights of citizenship. You know, totally like us. But remember when he was in Antioch? It's one thing to declare a truth. It's another thing to live it out. And Peter goes to Antioch, and he's all of a sudden uncomfortable eating with these Jewish believers, or these Gentile believers. And Paul has to rebuke him. Uh, but how many of us? I bet every church in America would say, we, are, we, we believe in reaching the lost. Do we? I mean, we, it's one thing to proclaim a truth, it's another to live it out. Oh, we believe in connection. In fact, we're all like, we need to start having worship services on Sunday morning again because it's all about connection. And for some of us, you know, we show up on Sunday morning, but we are not connected to the body of Christ. Sitting in a room together on Sunday morning does not connect us. So just because we say a truth doesn't mean we're living that truth out. So, but Peter is like, hey, we've got to live out this truth. These guys have the right to come. And then Paul and Barnabas begin to talk about all the signs that God's performing and how it's approving that this is what God says. This is the truth. This has been his plan all along. So, verse 13, let's pick up the story again. When they finished, James spoke up. James, who I believe is the head of the Judean church, the southern church, the Jewish church, and I believe he's speaking brothers, he's speaking to the Jews that are opposed. Most of the Jews that are opposed to this are the Judean Jews, the, the, the true Torah-following Jews, okay? They're saying, we don't like this. And so James is addressing them specifically, and he says this, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins <clears throat> I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to, by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Ooh, there's a lot in this passage, and I am super excited about it. I hope you're even half as excited as I am, because um, that'll be good enough. But I want you to understand that he's, he says this, this is from long ago. When I tell you, I want us to be able to understand the story God has been telling from Genesis to Revelation, it's because the story hasn't changed. 
We, there's a complete story that God has been telling, and for us to understand it and be able to articulate it, I believe is actually going to tear down walls from people who have had a hard time coming into the kingdom. They're going to be able to come into the kingdom. When we get our minds around this and we're able to proclaim the gospel in this way or wrestle with it in this way. So James comes and he says, guys, the, even, the, uh, even Amos says it. And he quotes a passage from the book of Amos that we, we refer to as David's tent. And many times we refer back to how David brought the Ark of the Covenant and he put it in a tent. And that means we've got to have 24-7 worship and prayer going on all the time. And I'm not going to argue with that. And I don't disagree with it. I love IHOP. I love the 24-7 prayer movement. I'm all for it. But I don't know that's the point that James is trying to make right here. The point he's trying to make is the tent of David, the tabernacle of David, is the line of David, the lineage of David. It's going to be restored through Jesus who comes through the line of David, and he is going to make a seat at the table available for all mankind. He is going to bring Jew and Gentile to the same table, full rights as sons and daughters of Abraham. And then he says... My conclusion is this. Let's tell them to keep these three laws. This is so important because many people are going to make the case that James picks three ethical laws, those universal laws. They, they'll take them from Leviticus 17, 18, and 19. It's the center of Leviticus. It's, you know, <clears throat> the, the, maybe a, even a chiasm, if you will, of Leviticus. And it's, you, the, this is what James is saying. But I think that disagrees with what James has just said. James says, hey, the Gentiles are free from Torah. So they're free from Torah. If now he comes back and says, let's pick three laws from Torah and say, hey, just keep these three. He's going against everything that is Jewish. If you break one law, you're guilty of all the law. You can't just pick three to do. So what's he doing? What's James, where did he pull these three out of? Is James just like, well, let me just, no. I think James is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with a man named Noah. The Noahic covenant. The Jews would have been very familiar with the Noahic covenant. Why? Because the Moses is read in the synagogue every week. See, the Jews have a custom ever since they came back from exile. So now about 420 years, 450 years, every single year, they read through the five books of Moses in the synagogue. Every year, so the 450 times they've read through it. Not just the law, but Moses. So every year, they have read Genesis 9. They've read the Noahic Covenant. They're familiar with the Noahic Covenant. In fact, their oral tradition is there are three to four parts of the Noahic Covenant. Do you know what those three to four parts are? Oh, yeah, you guessed it. I think James is pulling them out. The Noahic Covenant is important because it's a covenant God makes with all mankind, not with the Jews, not with Abraham, all mankind. And it's based upon how God created the world. For the Jews, they say part of the, the Noahic covenant is no idolatry. Because the covenant is between God and man. Me and Noah. Me and you. Me and you. Me and you. God says it over and over again. God is a God from the beginning that tells Abraham or that tells Adam and Eve in the garden, you display me. You put me on display. 
one God, one God. Idolatry has been a part of the universal law from the beginning. That's why James says, tell them not to eat meat sacrificed from idols because what's happening culturally is they're joining themselves with an idol. Don't do it. Don't join yourself with an idol. Be free from it. Worship one God. That's what James is saying. The second one, the sexual immorality. When, when the Jews look at the Noahic covenant, they look at Abraham's, or the, excuse me, Noah's response. Noah made a vineyard. Noah got drunk. Noah and Ham, there was this sin that happened that, I, that they believed, I believe, was some sort of sexual immorality. Something happened that was significant. I don't have time to go into it right now in this, this uh, sermon, but in that covenant, sexual immorality is a big deal. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, God created them, male and female, he created them, and they were the image bearers of God, made in his image as male and female. And they come together sexually as one flesh. So what happens is, anytime there's sexual immorality, it begins to skew the image of God that was established in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So when he pulls out sexual immorality, there's a reason that he's pulling that out. It's about the image of this God. We cannot let sexual immorality be a part of our lives because it skews the image of the God we represent. The third thing that he pulls out is do not eat meat with the blood still in it and do not shed blood. It's the sanctity of life. All the way back in the Noahic covenant, blood is the sign of life and should be treated as sacred. Life, all life is sacred. So when James says, let's put these laws on them, it's because... God put those laws on all mankind. It's how he created the world. And that, I believe, every other thing that we have in the New Testament to live by, I believe, could be traced back to idolatry, could be traced back to the sanctity of life or sexual immorality. Every single one of them. I think all three of them that the writers that we're going to talk about through the New Testament could be traced back to one of those three things. And so that's what James is saying. He's saying, hey, this is not the Torah. This is not the law of Moses. This is a covenant that God has made with all mankind, and this would do you well to follow it. Then they put it in writing because the apostles and elders, they decide they're going to do it. They're going to send to Antioch Paul and Barnabas, also Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, and they're going to send them with this letter. Here's the letter. Brothers, the apostles and elders, your brothers. Ooh, that's a big deal. See, for us, you know, we're all children of Abraham. We just sang that song today. We're no longer slaves. We're a child of God. Uh, that's no longer a real big deal for us. But for these Jews, that's earth shattering. And for them to even say, your brothers, <laughs> okay, because sometimes they say, brothers and God-fearing Gentiles, okay? They're saying, brothers, you're at the table. We're, this is huge. That little line is just everything, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, they would have also been familiar with the, the Noahic covenant, with the whole books of Moses. They would have been in the synagogue services. They would have heard these things. They understand what's happening here. What I want us to talk about in the last moments we're here together, what is this statement it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. What is that all about? Because, you know, all of my life, I've, I thought that's weird. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit because it's almost like they're saying the Holy Spirit was in this discussion with them. And, uh, you know, it seemed, they like made a decision. They looked over and he was like, yeah, it seems good to me. I mean, that's, it's so bizarre, but you can't think of it as our English phrase, okay? What is happening here? is a Jewish phrase, a Jewish ceremony, a Jewish tradition, if you will, called binding and loosing. Okay, we're going to talk about it in, in detail here in a second. But I grew up hearing that there is absolute truth and the authority of Scripture. And I still totally agree with that. Please don't mishear me right now. But the way I interpreted that was God decides what we need to do, and then we just obey it. So like everything in my life, I mean, I have to know what, what's the will of God. Should, is this the will of God for me to marry this person? Is it the will of God for me to have this job or that job or, you know, to do this? Should we do this ministry as a church? Should we do that ministry as a church? I mean, because there's only one will of God. And you know how much pressure there we put on ourselves because there's like this one will of God. And if we make one misstep, we're like, bam, we're just done. For the Jewish mind, that's not how they interpret it. Now, I believe Scripture is absolutely authoritative for our lives. I believe there are absolute truths. I believe there are some things in the Scripture that are black and white and don't need to be wrestled with at all. I believe there are things in Scripture that we need to wrestle with as a Christian community the same way the Jews did all throughout their history. If you remember, when we go all the way back to... Um, Moses. Why did Moses have to interpret the law for the people? I mean, if it's all black and white, what, why do they have to bring this stuff to Moses? Because it's not all black and white. And then when, when Moses decides, well, through his father-in-law Jethro, a Gentile, crazy, to appoint 70 elders to help him do this, God takes the same spirit that's on Moses and puts it on them so they're also able to do this. So it can also seem good to them and the Holy Spirit how to interpret the law in that situation. So for the Jews, this idea of binding and loosing is all about God's people gathering together, led by the elders, to decide God's intent in each context, in each generation, and in each circumstance. It needs to be wrestled with. So the work of binding and loosing is what the Jews would call it. Let's look at a modern-day example of what this would look like. So for a Jew today, they would wrestle with, should we drive on the Sabbath? Okay? There are absolute truths that apply to that situation. So they're going to gather together, the elders, the leaders, they're going to come together. They're going to do this work of binding and loosing. And someone's going to say, well, the truth is, the, the, the Torah says, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay? Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, is it work to drive? Wrestle, 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 wrestle. 
The scripture says, do not light a fire on the Sabbath. Okay, well, do you think that the engine combustion and the ignition that takes place, does that constitute lighting a fire? Wrestle, 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 wrestle. Someone else is going to bring up an absolute truth from scripture, and the community is going to wrestle with it. And then they're going to vote. And they're going to vote either no, we cannot drive on the Sabbath, and then the law is bound up. Okay? Or they're going to vote yes, and the law is loosed, and they're able to drive on the Sabbath. Very, very rarely would there be a unanimous decision. Do you know why? Because whenever two people are gathered, two opinions are present. And so that's the thing. We, we wrestle with this, but what happens the Jews then when they vote? They believe God holds them as a community to whatever they vote. I'm giving you the, the, the keys to the kingdom. We're coming there. And you have to bind and loose as a community. But whatever you choose, I'm going to hold you to it. We're not talking about the black and whites. We're talking about the areas. I know that some of us want to try to make all scripture black and white. I'm not going to go there. I don't think it's all that way. We have to wrestle as a community with this idea, which means we've got to come to the table and stay at the table. And for those Jews, if the community voted, they kept it. They did not go find another synagogue to be a part of. They did not write a nasty letter to the editor saying, hey, you need to write this in the newspaper about that group of people over there. They did not send nasty emails to people and try to to, to divide. They respected the opinion of the community and they continued to love their neighbor. This is such a foreign concept to our American individualistic culture. We have taught this idea of binding and loosing is all about individual. You just bind and you loose. And we, we, we claim to be connected as a community, but the reality of our lives shows that we are not connected as a community. But we do this in some ways. This is how we got all these denominations. This is how we got all these differences of opinions because we've been doing binding and loosing, only we didn't know that's what it was. We didn't call it that. And we didn't show respect for the, the opinion of of the community and follow it out. Because again, we're not talking about unethical things. We're not talking about totally violating the black and whites of scripture. We're talking about learning to come to the table and stay at the table with those we disagree with. And we, we throw people under the bus in our American Christianity. Oh, don't listen to that teacher. They teach that one thing that's, you know, one thing that's wrong. So they're disqualified from teaching. Guys, this is not what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 16. When Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of God, he says to Peter, you are Peter. You are this little rock. And on this rock, this revelation that I'm the Christ, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. I will build my community of believers. He did not say, I'll I'll build my institution. He did not say, I will build a brick and mortar building. He did not say, I will build my program. He said, I will build my community. And I tell you that that community, the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell are defensive mechanisms. The community of God is meant to 
to go after the people that are in hell, that are away from God, and there's nothing the gates of hell can do to keep us from going in and from basically setting the captives free with the message that he's provided us. Then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's saying, hey, community, you're going to have to stay at the table together. You're going to have to wrestle with this together. I guarantee you, those in this Jewish context, that's what they're hearing. They're not hearing that you got to cast out demons. You got to bind this demon and bind that spirit. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying there's no scriptures to support that. But what I'm saying is in this context, what they're hearing is this wrestling match. Stay at the table. Work this out. Go into the gates of hell. Get everyone into my kingdom. This is the mission of the church, and I don't know that we've done it very well over the years. I don't know that we've learned to respect the dialogue that we've had with one another. We sometimes, we as a society, we are so opinionated. I'm... I'm there too. We, uh, my way is the right way. You know, we argue with our doctor's diagnosis because, you know, I have WebMD. I've got the internet. I know you took six years of education and I know you had a residency and I know you have a board that's over you and I know you have all this knowledge, but I have the internet and WebMD. So we're all experts. I mean, and it's in everything. Education. Who would want to be in education right now? Because, I mean, for... Everyone's a teacher. Everyone's an expert. We all know how to do everything. And there's no respect for the dialogue. There's no honor for disagreement. And so if I say one thing and you disagree with me, well, then you're a bad person or you're full of fear or you're this or you're that. Or, and we label people. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, guys, come to the table. Wrestle with these things as a community. Now, if you're in a community of believers and there's a black and white of Scripture and they're saying, we're okay with this, you should absolutely separate yourself from that community. And you should find a community if you think that's a black and white of Scripture and you need to abide by it. But you don't have to throw them under the bus. Jesus said that the wheat and the tares will grow together. And if you start trying to uproot those that you deem to be the, the weeds, you're going to tear up some of the wheat too. So you've got to stick to the facts. You've got to stick to the doctrine. Don't try to throw people under the bus. Don't try to set yourself over someone else. We've got to bind and we've got to loose. And I think in Restoration Church, we've been doing this over the last three years, only we didn't know we were doing it. But we've been wrestling with some things because we feel as a church, God has called us to some things that are outside the norm for the American church. But it's okay if it's outside the norm of the American church because the American church is not our, our guide. It's not our absolute. When we worship, where we worship, how we worship, those aren't absolutes. What, what is an absolute is be in community. What is an absolute is love your neighbor. What is an absolute is worship God. What's an absolute? Seek and save the lost. Those are absolutes. And as we wrestle with how we're gonna do it, we're gonna be at the table. We We've got to come to the table, we've got to stay at the table, and we've got to walk this out. I want you to understand, this is a huge issue for the Jews, okay? Like I said earlier, we, don't, we hear it all the time. Oh, they're, we're children of God. And so for us, it's not a big deal. This changes everything for them. I don't believe there is an American church on the planet in America <laughs> that's what an American church is, that has ever wrestled with something as significant as what this church is wrestling with right here. 
I mean, there's a lot of things that we've wrestled with, even in Restoration Church. I don't know if anything is as life-altering as this big thing that they're wrestling with right here. This is huge. And they're saying, come to the table, stay at the table. And I wish chapter 15 ended right there. (laughs) But it doesn't. Because this sounds so good. This sounds like, oh, this is so great. But our reading didn't include the part that comes next. Remember where Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and everybody's celebrating this great landmark decision? And then Barnabas is like, okay, we've bound and loose, so John Mark gets to come back with us. Paul's like, no, John Mark's not on our team. He deserted us. I believe John Mark deserted them because he had a problem with Paul's gospel. He felt like it was too inclusive. You can't make them full children of Abraham. I think he went home. And now, binding and loosing, here's the decision. All right, I'll come with you. Paul's like, no. And the Bible says there was such sharp dispute that they separated. Oh. But you know what that means? That means if someone separates from a church, we don't have to throw them under the table. What's the goal? The goal is always restoration. Always. And at the end of their lives, John, Mark, and Paul are back in relationship. I love it. And so I wish it ended there, but I'm glad it doesn't because it shows us that even the great apostle Paul didn't always get this right. I really think Paul got that wrong. I really think Paul should have let John Mark come with them. Um, But, you know, I'm not them and I'm not their judge. So, and it all worked out in the end. So it's all good. But that shows us that when someone leaves the table, the goal is still restoration. It's still coming back to the table. And even though it's not this table, it's the table that we all as churches in this community sit at. Okay. I... All of my life, I have felt like God wanted me to be a part of the ministerial association in this town, to sit at the table, even with other pastors that maybe doctrinally, I would even wonder, you know, that's a, that's a big issue. How can I sit at the table with you? Because at the end of the day, I don't decide whether they're in and out of the kingdom. But what I do decide is whether or not I'm going to sit at the table with them and continue to wrestle with some of these issues together because that's how we storm the gates of hell and make sure everybody comes in. We still preach truth. We still hold to the absolutes. We just wrestle with those areas that we're not so sure about. And I know some of you would be like, what are you talking about? Which ones are those? Not going to tell you. But... As we go, we, we maintain what Paul said, that community of humility, of gentleness, of love, of moving towards one another, of making sure there's space for people to disagree with us, make sure there's space for people to grow and be restored. We're working on peace and prosperity in our city. We're working on restoration of relationships and the injustices that are happening. And I believe as a church, some of the stuff we've been praying for and leaning into in our restoration vision is beginning to happen right before our eyes. I'm excited for it, and I want us to stay at the table even as we continue to wrestle with how we do this ministry thing, how we, when we reopen, when we don't reopen, whether we wear masks, whether we don't wear masks, whether we have to stay six feet apart. You know what? We are going to continue to love our neighbor. We're going to continue to be at the table because these are not absolutes 
that should divide us. We should stay in community with one another, and we're going to keep wrestling. And so what a profound chapter. I know I gave you a ton to chew on, but you've got all week to go back and re-chew on it. Acts 15, the book of James, the book of Galatians. Continue to wrestle with it. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray blessing over your week ahead, and I'm going to pray blessing over us as a body that we would learn to do this. I want to be a church that models this in America. I, there are other churches I know that are already doing it, but I want to be one that models this type of ministry in this community and around the world. God could raise us up for it, not as a pride thing, because I don't, I don't want them to look at us. I didn't get these ideas from myself. I feel like the, the Lord put these ideas in my heart. He's put them in your hearts. I love seeing what he's doing. I love the dreams people are getting. I love the visions people are getting. But man, this is going to, I believe this is going to set people free and bring them into the kingdom in ways that we never imagined before. And so, Father, I just simply say thank you today. God, I thank you for the work that you are doing in Restoration Church. God, I thank you for the things that you have put in our hearts. God, I know that when we started this journey, we had no idea what was going to connect. We had no idea the things that you were going to bring up in our hearts. God, we had no idea that you were calling us to deal with injustice, that you were calling us to deal with the restoration of relationships. God, we had no idea what it looked like to work for the peace and the prosperity of our city. But God, we thank you that you've put these things in our hearts and we pray, God, that you'd help us to, to learn this concept of binding and loosing. God, that we would be able to wrestle with one another on these things that we maybe don't don't agree on. God, help us to see the absolutes of your word. God, those things that are truly black and white. God, those things that are not changing, that we cannot change. But God, help us to make space at the table for those that see things differently. God, help us to know how to wrestle with those things. Help us to know how to lean into relationship when we feel like running away. Help us to know how to draw near when we feel like distancing ourselves. God, help us not to claim theology, but help us to live it out in our lives, to be a church that is all about reaching the lost, to be a church that is about equipping the saints, to be a church that's about abiding in Christ, that's a church about planning churches and serving others. God, that these would not just be things we put on the wall, but these are things that live out in our daily lives. And so God, I pray this week ahead that you just continue to connect the dots in our hearts as a corporate body and in our hearts as individual believers. God, I pray blessing today over every family of Restoration Church, over every family that's watching right now, over every family that is a part of this community of Huron and the surrounding area. God, I pray your blessing over their lives. Would you bless them and keep them? God, would you cause your face to shine upon them? Would you lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace? And God, would you be gracious? Would you be gracious and merciful to the people of our area, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.